Chapter Eleven of Bunker Bean by Harry Leon Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joseph Tabler. The day began with placid routine. Breed did his accustomed two hours monologue, and no one molested Bean. No one appeared to know that he was other than he seemed, and that big things were going forward. Tully ignored him. Markham, who had the day before called him old man, whistled obliviously as they brushed past each other in the hall. No directors called him in to tell him that would never do with them. He was grateful for the lull. He couldn't be stirred up that way every day. And he needed to gather strength against Breed when Breed should discover that exquisite joke of the flapper's. He suspected that the flapper wouldn't find it funny to keep the thing from poor old Pops more than a few days longer. I'll be drawing my last pay next Saturday, he told himself. Telephone for Boston Baked, called the office boy Wit. Late in the afternoon, Bulger looked sympathetic. Same trouble I have, he confided as Bean passed him. Take them on once and they bother the life out of you. You'd never believe came the voice of the flapper. I found the darlingest old sideboard with claw feet yesterday over on 4th Avenue. He wants 280, but they're all robbers, and I just perfectly mean to make him come down five or ten dollars. Every little counts. You leave it to me. Sure, you fix it all up. And maybe we won't want fumed oak in the dining room. Maybe a rich mahogany stain. Would that suit? I'm only thinking of you. I'll leave all that to you. You'll perfectly well manage. Just perfectly darling well knew you'd say that. And I'm sending you down a car. A what? Car? This was even more alarming than the darling old sideboard. Just a little old last year's car. Poor old Pops would give it to me now if I asked him. But it's just as well to have it away in case Mom's could ever make him change his mind. Only, of course, she perfectly well can't do anything of the sort. But anyway, I'm sending it to that shop around the corner in the street below you, and they'll hold it there to your order. You never can tell. We might need it suddenly sometime, and anyway, you ought to have it. Don't you see? Because I'm just perfectly giving it to you this minute, and you can run about in it with that dearest dog, and it's the very first thing I ever gave you, isn't it? I'll always remember it for just for that. It will do us all right for a few weeks until we can look around. And there never was any one before, was there? You just needn't answer. You'd have to say no. And anyway, Granny says a young you-know-what should never ask silly questions about what happened before she met him because it perfectly well makes rows. And I know she's right, but there never was, was there? And no matter anyway, because it's settled forever now. And we do, don't we? My, but I'm excited. Don't forget what I said about the brass andirons and the curtains for your den. Goodbye. Huh? Yes, of course, said Bean, but the flapper had gone. Back at the typewriter, he tried to collect his memories of her message. Sideboard with darling feet of some kind, no fumed oak, perhaps, brass andirons, curtain for his den. He couldn't recall what she had said about those. Maybe it would come to him. He wished he had told her that he already had a few good etchings, and the car, that was plain in his mind, little old last year's thing, at that shop around the corner. 
did one say garage or garage he heard both anyway he owned a motor car you couldn't get around that maybe bulger wouldn't open his eyes if he knew it bulger was an authority on cars and spoke in detail of their strange insides with the aplomb of a man who has dissected them for years he had violent disputes with the second bookkeeper about which was the best car for the money the bookkeeper actually owned a motorcycle or would after he had paid five dollars a month a few more times but bulger would never allow this minor contrivance to be brought into their discussions bulger was intolerant of anything costing under five thou eat you up with repairs bean longed to approach bulger and say some dame that just sent me a little old last year's car but he knew this would never do bulger would not only tell him why the car was of an inferior make but he would want to borrow it to take a certain party or maybe the gang out for a spin and get everybody killed or arrested or something bulger dressed fearlessly no one with eyes could deny that but he was tactless better keep that car under cover at seven thirty that evening with nap on a leash he strolled into the garage he carried the yellow stick and the gloves and he was prepared to make all sorts of a nasty row if they tried to tell him the car wasn't there or so much as hinted that he might not be the right party he knew how to deal with those automobile sharks i believe you have a car here for me mr bean he said briskly it was the first time in all his life that he had spoken of himself as Mr. Bean. He threw his shoulders back even farther when he had achieved it. The soiled person whom he addressed merely called to another soiled person who, near at hand, seemed to be beating an unruly car into subjection. The second person merely ducked his head backward and over his right shoulder. "'All right, all right,' said the first person, and then to Bean, "'All right, all right.' The car was before him, a large and alarming car, and red. It was as red as the unworn cravat. Good thing it was dark. He wouldn't like to go out in the daytime in one as red as that. Not at first. He ran his eyes critically over it, trying to look disappointed. "'Good shape?' he demanded. "'How about it, Joe? She all right?' Joe perceptibly stopped hammering. "'Grumph, rumph!' he seemed to say. Al, said the first person, eyeing Bean as if this explained everything. Take a little spin, said Bean. Paul! Paul issued from the office, a shock-headed, slouching youth in extreme negligee, a half-burned cigarette dangling from his lower lip. He yawned without dislodging the cigarette. Gentleman wants to go out. Paul vanished. Knapp had already leaped to a seat in the red car. He had learned what those things were for. Paul reappeared, trim in leathern cap, well-fitting Norfolk jacket and shining puttees. Never know he only had on an undershirt, thought Bean, struck by his swiftly devised effect of correct dressing. He sat in the roomy rear seat beside Knapp, leaning an elbow negligently on the armrest. He watched Paul shrewdly in certain mysterious preparations for starting the car. An observer would have said that one false move on Paul's part would have been enough. The car rolled out and turned into the wide avenue half a block away. "'Where to, boss?' asked Paul. "'Just around,' said Bean. "'Tea and things.' They glided swiftly on. 
oh just a little old last year's car said bean frowning royally at a couple of mere foot people who turned to stare what would that flapper do next he surrendered to the movement drunkenly he mused upon a wild inspiration to bring ramta out and give him a ride in this big red car it appealed to him much ramta would almost open his eyes at the novelty of that progress but he felt that this was no safe thing to do he would be arrested the whole secret might come out he had retained no sense of direction but he was presently conscious of the river close at his side and then the car with warning blasts curved up to a much lighted building and halted a large man in uniform came solicitously to help him descend and gave him a fragment of cardboard which he knew would redeem his motor he was seated at a table looking down upon the shining river tea and things he said to the waiter uh, yes sir black or green sir bottle ginger ale how did he know whether he wanted black or green tea no time to be fussy he began a lordly survey of the people at neighboring tables people who had doubtless walked there or come in hired cabs at the best hired cabs had yesterday seemed impressive to him now they were rather vulgar of course there might be circumstances he froze like a pointing dog at a table not twenty feet distant actually in the flesh sat the greatest pitcher the world has ever known for a moment he could only stare fixedly the man was simply there he was talking volubly to two other men and he was also eating a mere raspberry ice it showed how things worked around once you got started hadn't his whole life been a proof of this how many times had he wished he might happen upon that pitcher just as he was now in street clothes to look at him study him he wished he had ordered raspberry ice instead of ginger ale which he didn't like he would order one anyway it was all ramta if you knew you were a king you needn't ever worry again you sat still and let things come to you after all a king was greater than a pitcher if you came down to it in some ways certainly he stared until the group left the table he could actually have touched the pitcher as he passed would wonders never cease two men in uniform helped him into the big red car again tenderly as if he were fragile he had meant to return to the garage but now he saw the more dignified way was to stop at his own house further paul should take him to the office in the morning and call for him at four thirty again he wouldn't be afraid to ride in the red car even in the daylight now sitting there not twenty feet from that pitcher eight o'clock in the morning he said curtly to Paul as he descended, and Paul touched his leather cap respectfully as the car moved off. Cassidy lounged near in shirt-sleeves. "'I see three was kilt up in one, yesterday, in the Bronx,' said Cassidy interestedly. "'Good thing for their tired businessman, though,' said Bean, yawning in a bored way. "'And that fellow of mine is careful.' Then his seeming boredom vanished say you can't guess who i'd saw just now close to him as i am to you this minute solitary in the big red car descending the crowded lanes of the city the next morning bean's sensations were conceivably those that had been ramtas at the zenith of his power there was the fragment and cherished memory of the greatest pitcher 
and a car to ride solitary in that simply blared the common herd from before it people in street cars looked enviously out at him he lolled urbanely with a large public manner when you were a king you behaved like one and the world knelt to you great pictures sitting under the same roof with you red motor cars fumed oak dining rooms flappers brokers shares he wished he had thought to chew an unlighted cigar in this resplendent chariot there seemed to be almost a public demand for it certain things were expected of a man be here at four thirty he directed and paul his fellow glancing up along the twenty-two stories of the office building was impressed he considered it probable that the bored young man owned this building the guys that have gets thought paul bean was preposterously working once more playing the part of a cog on the wheel another day it seemed of that grotesque nonsense even after the world's greatest pitcher had sat not twenty feet from him the night before eating raspberry ice but events could not long endure that strain before the day was over breed would undoubtedly fire him with two or three badly chosen words actually go through the form of discharging a man who had once ruled all egypt with a kindly but an iron hand of course the fellow was unconscious of this as he still must be of the rare joke the flapper was exquisitely holding over his head his demeanor toward bean betrayed no recognition of shares or pitchers or big red cars nor of the ever impending change in their relationship he dictated fragments of english words and bede reconstructed them with the cunning of a cuvier he felt astute robust and disrespectful just one wrong word from Breed, and all would be over between them the poor old wreck didn't dream that he had nursed a flapper in his bosom a flapper that would just perfectly have what she wanted and no good fussing in the outer office however he was aware that his expansion was subtly making itself felt bulger had insensibly altered and was treating him after the manner of a fellow clubman old metziger said good morning to him affectionately for metziger and once he detected tully staring at him through the enlarging glasses as if in an effort to read his very soul but he knew his soul was not to be read by such as tully tully back there on the nile would have been a dancer at the most a fancy skater if indeed he had risen to the human order and were not still a slinking gazelle good name that for tully he would remember it gazelle at three o'clock he glanced aside from his typewriter to see a director enter breed's room he did not lift his look above the hem of the man's coat but he knew him for the quiet one and yet when the door closed upon him he seemed to become as noisy as any of them bean heard his voice rising another director came the big one who gripped a cigarette with an obviously cigar mouth once behind the shut door he seemed to approve of the noise and to be swelling its volume three other directors hurried in the elderly advanced dresser in the lead he of course was always indignant but now the other two were manifesting collar equal to his own they puffed and glowered and when the door had closed they seemed to help skilfully with the uproar it was a mob scene bean was reminded of a newspaper line he had once or twice encountered the scene was one of indescribable confusion pandemonium reigned 
pandemonium indubitably seemed to reign over those directors he wondered he wondered uncomfortably buzz 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 he quit wondering he knew yet for a moment after he stood in their presence they seemed to take no note of him they were not sitting decorously in chairs as he conceived that directors should the big one with the cigarette sat on the table ponderously balanced with a fat knee between fat red hands another stood with one foot on a chair only the quiet one was properly sitting down the elderly advanced dresser was not even stationary with the faultless coat thrown back by pocketed hands revealing a waistline greater than it should have been he strutted and stamped he seemed to be trying to step holes into the rug and to be exploding intimately to himself plain enough said the man who had been studying his foot on the chair someone pulled the plug and away she goes Whoosh, said the big man dramatically kennedy and bulch buying right and left open at a hundred and twenty-five tomorrow sure said the quiet one quietly placed an order yesterday for four hundred shares and got em said another not so quietly and today they're bidding federal express up to the ceiling plug pulled the advanced dresser director strutted to the fore with a visibly purpling face plug pulled want to know where it was pulled right in this office want to know who pulled it that he pointed unmistakably to the child among them taking notes at another time bede might have quailed at least momentarily but he had now discovered that the advanced dressing old gentleman used scent on his clothes he was afraid of no man who could do that in the public nostrils he surveyed the old gentleman with frank hostility noting with approval however the dignified yet different pattern of his waistcoat but he knew the other directors were looking hard at him shrimp snake added the old gentleman like a shocked naturalist encountering a loathsome hybrid been plowing with our heifer asked Breede incisively bean was familiar with that homely metaphor he felt easier your heifer he would have liked to snort as the old gentleman did but refrained from an unpractised effort your heifer no i bought a good fat yoke of steers to do my ploughing took his money to buy one of em with he waved a careless arm at the smouldering vessel across the table they were all gasping in horror in disgust he was a little embarrassed he sought to smooth the thing over a bit with his next words eagle shot down with its own feather he said hazily recalling something that had seemed very poetic when he read it what'd i tell you what'd i tell you shouted the oldest director doing an intricate dance step hold me federal asked breed a block or two several margins of it said bean how many shares have to ask kennedy and Baltz. they're my brokers i guess about some seven or eight hundred shares what'd i tell you what'd i tell you again shouted the oldest director and as if despairing of an answer he swore surprisingly for one of his refined garniture and aroma find out something in this office asked breed evenly why wouldn't i i found out something the minute you sent people to me with that by the way stuff 
I knew it as quick as you had them breaking their ankles trying to get my fifty shares. Knew it the very minute you sent that, that slinking gazelle to me. He pointed at Tully. He had not meant to call Tully that. It rushed out. Tully wriggled uneasily in his chair at the desk, blushed well into his yellow beard, then drew out a kerchief of purest white silk and began nervously to polish his glasses. Hooshaw! It was Breed, with for the moment a second purple face on the board of directors. Neither Bean nor Tully ever knew whether he had suppressed a laugh or a sneeze. "'Come, come, come!' broke in the oldest, sweeping the largest director aside with one finger as he pulled a chair to the table. "'This'll never do with us, you know. How much, how much, how much?' He again poised the chastely wrought fountain pen of gold above the dainty checkbook in Morocco leather. "'Have to give em up, you know. Can't allow that sort of underhand work. Where'd the world be? Where'd it be? Where'd it be?' "'Sign an order. Tell me what you paid. Take your word for it.' He was feeling for being the contempt which a really distinguished safe-blower is said to feel for the cheap thief who purloins bottles of milk from basement doorways in the gray of dawn. "'Now, now, now, boy!' The pen was still poised. "'Oh, put up your trinkets,' said Bean, with a fine affectation of weariness. The old gentleman sat back and exhaled a scented but vicious breath there was silence. It seemed to have become evident that the unprincipled young scoundrel must be taken seriously. Then spoke the largest director, removing from his lips a cigarette which his own bulk seemed to reduce to something for a microscope only. He had been silent up to this moment, and his words now caused Bean the first discomfort he had felt. "'You will come here tomorrow morning,' he began, slanting his entire facial area toward Bean, and you will make restitution for this betrayal of trust. I think I speak for these gentlemen here when I say we will do nothing with you to-night. Of course, if we chose. But no, you are a free man until to-morrow morning. After that, all would depend on you. You are still young. I shall be sorry if we are forced to adopt extreme measures. I believe we shall all be sorry but I am sure a night of sober reflection will bring you to your senses. You will come here tomorrow morning. You may go. The slow, cool words had told. He tried to preserve his confident front as he turned to the door. He would have left his banner on the field, but for the oldest director, who had too long been silent. "'Snake in the grass!' hissed the oldest director, and instantly the colors waved again from Bean's lifted standard. He did not like the oldest director, and he soared into the pure ether of verbal felicity, forgetful of all threats. He stared pityingly at the speaker a moment, then cruelly said, "'You know they quit putting perfumery on their clothes right after the Chicago fire.' He left the room with faultless dignity. "'Impertinent young whelp!' spluttered the oldest director, but his first fellow-director who dared to look at him saw that he was gazing pensively from the high window, his back to the group. "'No good,' said the quiet director to the largest. "'A little man's always the hardest to bluff. Bet I could bluff you quicker than you could bluff him.' "'Well, I didn't know what else. 
answered the largest director, who was already feeling bluffed. Freddy get mad's hell and quit me, said Breed. Only snographer ever found gimme minutes peace. Dunno why. Tuck all right, he understands me. Rest drive me sane. Plugs pulled anyway, commented the quiet director. Only thing to do is haul in what we can on a rising market. God knows where she'll stop. Pound her down, said the largest director sagely. Any pounding now will pound her up. Hold off and let it die down. Only make it worse. No use. We've got to cut that money up. Seven hundred shares, did he say? Asked the large director. Very pretty indeed. J.B., I'll only give you one guess whether he quits his job or not. That's so, admitted Breed dejectedly. He'll show up all right in the morning, mark me, said the largest director, regaining confidence. Sneaking snake in the grass, muttered the oldest director, yet without his wanted vim. I'll telephone McCurdy right in the next block here, continued the largest director. Might as well have this chap watched tonight and keep tight to him tomorrow until he shows up. We may find somebody's behind him. It's my idea, said Breed. Someone behind him. Grinning little ape, remarked the oldest director bitterly. To be in the outer office came the facetious boy. Telephone for Professor Bunker Hill Monument, he said, but spoiled it by laughing himself. It was extempore and had caught him unawares. The harried bean fled to the telephone booth. I wanted to tell you, began the flapper, not to eat anything out of cans unless I just perfectly have it on my pure food list. They poisoned people, but the dearest grocer gave me a list of all the safe things made up by a regular committee that tells how much poison each thing has in it, so you can know right off, or alcohol either. Now remember, oh yes, what was I going to say? Granny says the first glamour soon fades, but after that you just perfectly settle down to solid companionship. And, oh yes, I want you to let me just perfectly have my own way about those hangings for the drawing room, because... You see, I know, and, oh, I had something else. No matter. I, won't I be glad when the deal is adjusted in the interests of all concerned, as poor old Potts says. Why don't you tell me something? Uh, I'm just perfectly waiting to hear. Uh, of course, of course, you're just perfectly a slinking gazelle. <laughs> Answered Bean, laughing at his own jest after the manner of the office boy. He was back making a feeble effort to finish the last of Breed's letters. He glanced mechanically at his notes. Above that routine work, he had so many things to think about. He'd fixed Tully for good. Tully wouldn't try that, by the way, and not impossible, stuff with him any more. And that little old man, perfumery not used since the Chicago fire, or had he said the Mexican war, no matter, and talked to Breed about heifers. But there was the big-faced brute, speaking pretty seriously. Let him go free tonight. State's prison offense, maybe. Might be in jail this time tomorrow. Would the flapper telephone to him there? Send him unpoisoned canned food? Would he be disgraced? Breed, directors, glamour wearing off, slinking gazelles with yellow whiskers, rotten perfumery, so rushed the turbulent flood of his mind, but the letter was finished at last. 
Two days later, a certain traffic manager of lines west of Chicago read a paragraph in this letter many times. The cramped conditions of this terminal have been, of course, appreciably relieved by the completion of the west side cutoff. Nevertheless, our traffic has not yet attained its maximum, and new problems of congestion will arise next year. I'm engaged to that perfectly flapper daughter of yours, and we are going to marry each other when she gets perfectly good and ready. Better not fuss any. Let Julia do the fussing. To meet this emergency, I dare say it will come to four tracking the old main line over the entire division. It will cost high, but we must have a first-class freight carrier if we are to get the business. The traffic manager at first reached instinctively for his telegraph cipher code, but he reflected that this was not code phrasing. He read the paragraph again and was obliged to remind himself that his only daughter was already the wife of a man he knew to be in excellent health. Also he was acquainted with no one named Julia. He copied from the letter that portion of which seemed relevant and destroyed the original. He had never heard it of breed, but he knew there are times when, under continued mental strain, the most abstemious of men will relax. End of chapter 11